Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast with myself, Mike Finch, and Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, we've had quite a bit of interest and uh, excitement around our recent series on fatigue, and we hope that you've enjoyed it. If you look at the last two podcasts that we put out, one was on a general sort of view of fatigue, and then the one we did just over a week ago is the one on fatigue resistance. And we've had quite a lot of discussion around that. So thank you very much for your comments. And uh, today we're going to be tackling a subject which is uh, close to the hearts, I think, of many parents out there. We're going to be discussing some of the uh, issues with a very uh, a, a person who knows a lot about uh, the skeletal system of young athletes we talk about uh, the maturation of those athletes and how they and when they should be used and uh, all those sort of interesting uh, parts around uh, young athletes so keep an eye on for that as we get into the main subject a bit later on our podcast uh, but before we do that uh, I know Ross has got a couple of caught my eyes so the only thing that's sort of caught my eye in a massive way in the last couple of weeks if I can kick things off is uh, the uh, name of Tade Pogaccio who seems to be dominating the classic season in Europe at the moment and uh, I know we've discussed you know a lot about uh, Pogaccio but watching him ride uh, across the various classics he's won three of them and uh, just seems to be imperious in a way that I've never seen a cyclist and I think I heard a comment by one of the commentators saying um, when they were watching uh, a couple of days ago we were watching Flesh Well On which he won up that final big climb at the Mur de Hoy. And he just rode away from people at will at times. And he seems to be in a in another level compared to no, no other ride out there. You look at Tom Pitcock, who's obviously in the height of his career, still not able to stay with him on some of the climbs. And he just seems to be so much better than anybody. It's all, it almost makes it boring because he if he's in the race, he's probably going to win it. Yeah, I mean, I I planned to do an indoors ride on Zwift yesterday as a flesh on watch party, you know, yes. so I sit there and watch this race. And I promised my indoor ride was more entertaining than that race. Yeah. it's It, it is a little bit, but I mean, it obviously is mightily impressive. And I was looking at some of the stats now. If he wins on Sunday, the last monument of yeah, this, Liege, this uh, season, Liege. then he becomes, I think, Philippe Gilbert and, and David, is it David Rebelin won them all three of those, the Ardennes classics. Mm. None of them came close to winning Flanders. Mm. So he's won Flanders, Amstel Gold, and Fresh Wallon just a couple of days right. ago from us doing this podcast. Yeah, and then remember he won Paris-Nice. Yeah. He's won all the other other stage races. I think mm. he's at 68% of the races he started this year. He's won. Yeah. And yeah. his career is 24%. I saw that stat as well, which and watching already is it, I mean, ridiculous. Watching him going up that climb when he pulled ahead of uh, Tom Pitcock on the Amstel uh, Gold race is yeah. just absolutely insane. I mean, he literally just rode him off the wheel. That performance was probably, Flesh Line was pretty dull and, and, and often is actually. Like everyone just waits for the last 1.2 Ks. incredible. 
But that Amstel Gold performance, because one by one, I mean, attack first, thin the group, attack again, mm. drop it, now it's three, then drop Peely, then drop Pidcock. I mean, it's just, mm. it's like like shooting fish in a barrel yeah. for the guy. So, so that said, winning these races as a climber is not unusual, like mm. David Reblin and so on. But it's the Flanders that makes it remarkable, I think. Mm. Like the, the fact that, um, you know, the guys who were in contention in Flanders to challenge him don't even race these ones. Mm. You will not see Mads Pedersen and these guys at the top of the murder and Ansel mm. Gold, right? So he's winning on both terrains, mm. literal cobbles, the flat, the tarmac, the kills, the, the, the flat rides. Well, relatively, I mean, Flanders obviously is, is, is bumpy. Mm. But it's, yeah, it would be interesting to actually like unpack the physiology of that. Like why, why is he able to do that when no one else has been able to do mm. it in the modern era, you know? Because you can climb with the so best. It's, it's he's, the, he's a puncher in the same vein as Matteo van der Poel, although they often don't compete against each other. Mm. When they do, Bogatia wins. Yeah. Uh, it is, I mean, it is amazing that he's, I mean, they talk about him comparing him to Eddie Merckx, you know, wanting to win everything, whether it's a long stage race or it's a classic, and he's able to do that. He, yeah, is, that, he is another Eddie Merckx. And of course, those comparisons are, are tricky because the, the degree of professionalism and competitiveness back then is completely different now. It's mm. arguably much more difficult to be a generalist now than mm. it was then. Yeah. So anyway, it's because he, he must have, we know from the Tour de France performances that between 20 and 30 minutes, he's the best. Yeah. I'd suggest that from 30 minutes over, Vinegar showed that he's better. Yes. And he true. has done a couple of times, even though he didn't win the Tour, he put him in trouble. I remember on one one two. Mm-hmm. So, so that seems to be like where Pogaccia starts to like lose the stronghold at the t- at the number one mm-hmm. spot, but mm-hmm. not by much, right? But then you come down and you say, fifteen minutes, okay, he's winning those climbs. Ten minutes, he's dominant. The mm-hmm. Quaramont and the Paterberg are one to two minutes long. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe the Quaramont's a little longer, it's just over two k's, but he's he's as good as the specialist. So, mm-hmm. the range, so his power duration curve must look. Like the best parts of the long distance, the long specialists in the mountains, and the best parts of the short, and he's mm. connecting the two, and that's never been done. Yeah, and it's interesting because so he's that's... got a, he's got interesting ways of riding. Like his handlebars are quite narrow um, compared to a lot of the pros. I read some of the setups on his bikes. He's got narrow handlebars. He's he seems to have a very high cadence compared to some of those big puncher type riders when he's going up those climbs. He's really his cadence is high, whereas some of the bigger riders, Lundepool and Co, are pushing relatively big gears. So he's a he's obviously very technically very good as well. I would imagine, yeah, the, yeah, seems that way. <laughs> he didn't get out of the saddle on them where did he yesterday <laughs> until about a hundred meters to go. So mm-hmm. everyone else was fighting the bicycles, and he was not. He looked. I don't. I didn't see the performance. I don't think it was particularly fast because with 150 meters left of that climb, there were still 10 guys. Mm who in theory had a chance, but in reality had zero. <laughs> yeah. I thought so, Roman Bardet might sneak it. But <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He, he, he had to make two, two moves because he got blocked on the right. Yeah. But anyway, I, yeah. it's impressive. I, I don't know. I do, you know, my feelings on cycling. Though. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave the cynics view for next week. Anyway, yeah. So Court Myers, what have you got uh, lined up there, Ross? Yeah. So here's a cracker that I got. This was actually on Twitter, not Patreon. Normally I'll, I'll take these on Patreon. So that's an incentive for you to sign up. You, you go to <laughs> patreon.com forward slash science of sports or sports science. What, what, I don't even remember. Science of sport podcast. Thank yeah. you. Science of sport podcast. But this one was on Twitter, and I thought it was—I thought it was pretty cool. It's from Mel Sykes, who finished a race recently, London 
to Manchester in fourth position. Sorry, Manchester to Liverpool Ultra. Sorry, I'll get my get my brain in this game eventually. Manchester to Liverpool Ultra 2023 crossed the line in fourth place, was subsequently upgraded to third because the woman who did come third was later found to have taken a car for two and a half miles of the 50-mile race. <laughs> and Mel Sykes messaged me saying, here's a caught my eye. And it was actually her post saying like she'd been promoted to third place as a consequence of this disqualification of a Polish runner. And then it kicked off yesterday. There was an article in the BBC, the Guardian, Sean Engel ended up covering the, the aftermath of it. And it basically describes how this athlete traveled in a car for two and a half miles and was then bust because <laughs> in her Strava file, she covered a mile in the race in one minute, 40 seconds. <laughs> now, okay. And then and subsequently emerged- It's a world record. By a lot. <laughs> it subsequently emerged that she- she hadn't been feeling that great and so she hopped in a car and took the car to the next sort of water point and she's now saying that the officials encouraged her to finish which she then said she would do fine okay cool but then she still accepted the prizes and posed for the photos and everything afterwards and has called that subsequently a really bad mistake that she regrets and so forth but a bad error of judgment but then then how bad is it to upload your strava file <laughs> Knowing that people, a friend of mine messaged yesterday and she's just sort of a recreational and she says she loves looking at people's Strava files to yes, see what's I'm the fastest a bit of a smile, Strava, yes, look true. at their heart rates and so on. Yeah. So, if, I mean, so this, this, this athlete, um, Dr. Zakrewski, Josia Zakrewski of Poland has claimed that she had traveled a long way, she was jet lagged, wasn't thinking straight and as a consequence took all the pictures, accepted the prizes Went home, uploaded the file, got caught, and I was, ah, oh, it was a, just a bad error of judgment. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, Mel Sykes, yeah, so thanks to Mel and congratulations on your third place. Yes. But it, it, it kicked off some really good, funny chat actually about this and made me, meme. made me think of some of the other examples. Tell us the story about the twins and comrades. Oh, yes, the Motsin, oh, I forget their name. So there was a twin. The, I forget the name now, but I'll I'll put it in the show notes. But they they were they were twins yeah. exactly, and they looked exactly the same. And I remember covering the story as the journalist uh, myself and one of the local journalists picked up the, the error. Where at halfway, one of the twins ran into a um, toilet cubicle where his brother was waiting, and the brother exited and carried on for the second half of the race. And suddenly, this guy was in the top. And the only reason why they discovered that it was it was uh, that they'd been cheating is they were wearing different coloured watches. Um, so they that's how they caught one had a different coloured watch in the second half, and then the other one had a different coloured watch in the first half. Otherwise, the, they were identical. Was it in the day of the chip timer? Uh, yes, it was. So they swapped, so they just swapped, they swapped yes. chips. Yes. Okay. So, so <laughs> yes, I'll put the I'll put the story in the show notes because it is an absolute classic and one mm. of the best. If I say best, it's one of the most famous cheating stories I can remember, remember running. But uh, they were, they almost got away with it. Yeah. Was there ever yeah. a was there ever a car used at Comrades? Not that I know of. And just just to just to go back to that story just very briefly, the guy that actually raised the alarm was a guy by the name of Nick Bester who'd won the Comrades previously, oh, yeah. and he said he was running along and suddenly there was this guy who was ahead of him that he hadn't seen before, and he was like wondering where did he come from, and that's what kind of raised the alarm about okay, hang on, there's something suspicious, and then we started looking at the pictures mm. and whatever. Anyway, yeah, so I've never heard of a I never heard of a car at Comrades because you can imagine back in the day that was probably a very good opportunity because there were big gaps between the mm. runners. 
um, in the sort of 40s and 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm, and the um, comrades sort of followed the route parallel to the main highway. So yeah, you could do it. You could easily do it. Yeah. 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 But I've yeah. never heard of it, a comrades actually happening, but surprisingly not, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. It just isn't known, maybe. Yeah. It's like doping. It's there. It's just known. While, while you're talking, I'm actually going to look it up on my phone because I, I need to know what, what the name is going to bother me. Another one I remember also having used a car is a guy called Rob Young was trying to break the record for running across the USA from the West Coast to the East Coast. Yes, yeah, I remember this. And a, a bunch of Let's Run followers raised the flag on this guy because he was promoting where he'd be so that people could come tag along. And then one night someone came and ran with him, well, planned to run with him and saw the camper van and know Rob Young. And so this then kicked off all these sort of amateur sleuths. And eventually the guy who was sponsoring Young, a guy called Jamie Fuller of Skins, contacted me and another guy to say, will we be able to look into this if he gets us access to Rob Young's data files? And the reason I bring it up is because Rob Young was very happy for us to look at his watch records, all his files, TomTom records and so forth, which struck, it strikes me it's the same as this athlete now, like uploading the file. I don't mm. know whether they don't think about it or whether they are so convinced that they'll get away with it anyway. I mean, you can't be if you're her. You know you've done a mile in like a minute 40. And Rob Young was the same. There were periods on that run. It wasn't outrageous, but there were a couple of periods when he was doing 50K an hour for a few hundred meters. Mm -hmm. And there were other moments when it was like just inconceivably fast relative to the rest of the run. And so by the time we got hold of the data, it became very obvious. And I remember we said, okay, what's the best metric? It's not always speed because... If you're, if you're clever about it in the car, you'll drive the car at sort of 12k an hour, five minutes a k, and you'll mm. say I was running. Mm. So we eventually decided on using his cadence record from the watch and his speed to work out step length, because that's yes. what you basically get. If, you, if you're running five minutes a k and you're taking 90 steps a minute, you should be taking, what's it, 450 strides per minute. Yes. And so we looked at that. I can see we, where this is going. And we plotted it. <laughs> and it was amazing because night runs, his average step length was like 20 meters. Daytime <laughs> runs, 1.1 meters. And in this, the, these, two, these two populations the of nighttime, nighttime runs and daytime <laughs> runs separated out like oil and water. And we just plotted this on a graph and it was so obvious that the guy sure. must have been in the car or on the back of the car or something for long, long periods, but only ever at night. It was, it was well, it was clear as day, if you'll pardon the, the mixing of day and night. And eventually, that was we published that, and off he went. She was just. To, I just looked up the names of the brothers. It was Sergio and Fika Motsaning in 1999, and they finished. They, they finished ninth in that race <laughs> until they were eventually busted. They got six thousand rand, which is a what about five hundred dollars in prize money that they lost in the process. But yeah, good, good, good story. <laughs> mm, but notorious, in notorious history. indeed. Yeah. Then uh, anyway, speaking of running, did you watch Boston on Monday? Oh man. That was fantastic. Evans Chibet. I mean, yeah, the races always, were good. Eh? The this, women's race was also really good. The women's race good. was really good. And I think what made me a little bit sad is that Runners World in the US, their, their story was the fact that Kipchoge didn't win. And they didn't necessarily celebrate the fact that Evans Chibet is arguably the number one marathon At in the, the world moment, now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on the television coverage, yeah, I don't know what it's like where you are in the world listening to this, but. Once Kipchoge got dropped, there was a split screen, Kipchoge and the men. Yes. It was ridiculous. Like, and we know he's coming eighth. Yeah, in, in, the end he come, in the end, he finished uh, sixth, sixth, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, but just, I was really surprised at how almost meekly he went off the back. I mean, the moment the, moment the pace went up, he was just drift backwards. It was, it was weird. The strange thing is, and I, I, I guess it's when you look at the way he's run in the past, he's always had the, the pace. Is. We've discussed this in the podcast before. 
there is no doubt, and there is a change now in marathon running around the world where these use of pace setters is becoming less yep. and less prevalent. And Boston is one of those races where there are no pace setters. Mm. It's a race and the best person wins. It's not about pace setting. So Kipchoge was on the front. Literally everybody was behind him. He was the favorite. Everybody was pacing <laughs> off him. And I think what's interesting in that is that his dynamic when he's run really fast races is that he has had these pace setters. Now all of a sudden he's on his own. Yeah, and he has done the Olympics, of sort course. Sort of. Too. I was, that's, that's the point I was going to make. Two mm. of his most dominant wins were the Olympic Games. Yeah, true. But the difference, I think, because I, I had the same thoughts watching it, is this guy, this guy must have learned from all those sub two gimmicks that you don't sit in the front. And there was a headwind in Boston for big parts of that course. I don't think he had a choice, to be honest. He, Nobody he, was willing he, to go past him. Of course he, could. of course he did. They would have just run two hundred nine. Yeah, but true. that's the problem. He wanted to go to Boston and run two hundred four. Mm. And then he had to take the lead. So he wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He yeah. wanted fast. And you know what I mean? So so fi- he finds himself doing exactly what the sub two thing should have taught him not to mm. do, which is, I think, a little bit of hubris, in my opinion. And then the moment, the moment, it, and, and he was way too fast early in Boston. The first, mm. the first sort of 5K was like 14, 18 or something. And it is downhill. But the hills of Boston hurt the legs. Yeah. We, we in South Africa know that because nothing around here is flat. Mm-hmm. It's not like Berlin. Even the Olympic marathons, I think, are a little flatter. Paris is not, so that that sets up an interesting Paris marathon if he can get himself in 15 months into some sort of shape again. But, yeah, it was strange to me to see him on the front. He obviously thought he could lead solo for two hours and five minutes and win a race against really good guys, and that just seems to me to be, yeah, a little overconfident. And then I subsequently saw he said he was bothered by a leg issue and they said to him, do you think that the pace on the downhills contributed to it? Not at all, he says. He's asked whether the course, which is hillier than the other 17 marathons, is race challenged him. He says, there's no challenge. My training actually is all round. It can accommodate hill up and down or flat. There's no challenge at all, says the guy who got beaten by five other people. I just, I th- he's a fabulous marathon runner, but I find this shtick a bit tiresome, to be yeah, honest with yeah, you. Like, yeah. like, just recognize that you were challenged whether by the course or by the five other guys like mm-hmm. this whole like transcendent marathon stick actually tires me but anyway I, I think when you're having excuse the phrase having smoke blown up your bum if five minutes <laughs> by everybody wants to know yeah. it's very difficult to maybe That's, move away from that and I kind of you get that sense that's that it, what I think he's lauded and you know it kind mm. of he's the he's the goat and mm. everybody talks about him like that so I guess it's hard to yeah. humble yourself in that situation when everybody's yeah know, being he, up there yeah yeah so anyway i saw that and i was just actually you know you could you could actually just say you were beaten you had a bad day or yeah, something sure. so he's only one so the only two marathons he hasn't won is oh, obviously it? boston and new york yeah uh, of the of the majors every other one he's won did he do um, i don't know if it's chicago I don't, i'm not sure that he's won one in the u.s i stand corrected no i think he's won he's won five of the seven is that right I stand corrected, yes. but I didn't think that he'd won Chicago. So, <laughs> as you can tell, folks, we don't do much um, <laughs> prep. <laughs> the, but I just on on the Boston Marathon, the women's race came down, and I was sort of chuckling silently to myself because when we recorded our last podcast on durability and fatigue resistance, we used Helen O'Berry as an example, and sure enough, there was Helen O'Berry with one mile to go, and company in the form of it would have been two or three other athletes. And of course, the commentators now start talking about Helen O'Berry's track speed, mm. which makes the difference, but only because Helen O'Berry is legitimately a two-hour, 16-17 marathon potential, you know? So she's mm. really so good, has, and that was a good race. So he has won Chicago oh, he has. in 2014, so he's won Chicago, Berlin, London, 
and Tokyo. Tokyo. So yeah. just Boston and York okay. are, are waiting. So yeah, 2014 okay, was Chicago. So that was his first marathon major actually that he won. So oh, okay. there we are, research on the fly. Because I remember since then, it's been Boston for a world record every year and London for a big flat fast race. Yeah. And so he's tried to break that, and which I think is also commendable, by the way, like to, to try and tick all of them off and win races of different kinds. And also makes some strategic sense because if you're going to win Paris with its hills, I would suggest you'd want to run New York and Boston yeah. at least a couple of times before that. Yeah. So that's probably, well, I don't know, we'll see. 38 is probably the latter part of his career. And that's the thing. I've been waiting so, for four or five years to see the decline and it hasn't come. It hasn't come. Maybe well, now, maybe, maybe it it's finally come. I don't know. But In a way, and I'm not saying I wish bad luck on him because he is a true, a true great. But in a way, if he dominated and won all the majors, got the course record at every single one of the majors, it kind of... I don't know. You almost want him not to do that. But like Tiger Woods, everybody was saying he was going to beat Jack Nicklaus's record for the number of majors and, and probably never will now. Mm-mm. But when they're lauded like that and they don't quite get that, it shows you what those records but are like. like. It's, not, like it's not that easy. But like today, Pagetta well, too. Will he, mm. will, he, will he win everything for when, years? All of them. And then, yeah. yeah, exactly. The way he's going years. <laughs> I mean, he'll win Liège, best on Liège, maybe probably the Tour, yeah. pick up the world title. In yeah, one but he's season. got to beat the human skeleton at the tour, so you know, <laughs> that's a vinegard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, and then a final one that caught my eye in the context of Boston was there was some chat about the woman who came fifth in the in their race, Emma Bates. Yes, and oh, what a race she had, man. Yeah, and Scaragaccia uh, was commenting on Twitter saying that mm. she's got the most perfect form for running a marathon and the most efficient looking technique she must have the best running economy yeah, and then Trent Stellingworth who as opposed to Ibiri who looks like she's overstriding and this the is time. this is the interesting thing is I almost I almost guarantee that Ibiri and Bates are the same running economy and the point is that you can't you can't visually judge it and so Trent Stellingworth replied on Twitter to make that point is that we we, we don't really know what makes good running economy and we get like a little bit drunk on aesthetics and it's not it's not all there. So a study that he then linked to was published in the European Journal of Sports Science in 2021 and it's called Visual Classification of Running Economy by Distance Running Coaches. And what they did was they had five runners come in with running economies that were close together but different. So ranging between 40 and 50 mils per kilogram per minute. And then they had 121 coaches make an assessment and rank them from one to five, best to worst running economy. And 35% of the coaches scored zero. Okay. Not a single person ranked in the right place. But what, how, do we, how do you judge economy? What is well, the, I'll, get, what, I'll get to that. Okay. I just want to give you the results, right? Because yeah. this is how bad we are. And these were good coaches. Eh? These are from international, college, high school level coaches. Mm-hmm. 35%, zero out of five ranked right. 47% got one out of the five, 12% got two out of five, and 6% three out of five. Not a single person could get four or five out of five. I suppose if you're going to get four, you're going to get five, right? Mm-hmm. And then they say to the coaches, what, what sort of stuff are you looking at? And so the coaches come up with these lists, and they include things like negatives would be, uh, let me just read this to you here. Negatives would be greater vertical displacement or bounce. If you show that, you've got low running economy. Heel striking, footfall pattern, high body mass, lateral transverse movement of the arms across the body, thinking of Barry now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. high arm carriage, again thinking of Barry, uh, greater forward lean, overstriding. On the good side, listed as good for running economy, higher stride rate, midfoot or forefoot, 
footfall under the center of gravity and greater forward lean. So some coaches listed forward lean as good, some listed it as bad to <laughs> illustrate the point. But the point is that we don't, I, I think we get biased a little bit on symmetry and compactness and we think that's what makes efficiency. And it's, I think the efficiency is probably inside the body and it's not necessarily on the outside. But physically, if you look at Helena Berry, she's got this big sort of loping stride. Obviously, she comes from a very strong track background, mm. um, but she's got this long, looks inefficient because she's taking longer strides, whereas you, you look at the American and she's got these short sort of, and, and physically, I, I hear what you're saying, but you know, physiologically, Berry is not looking as efficient. Surely that is reasonable to say that she's not as efficient. She, no. might, she might be cardiovascularly stronger, which obviously proved to be on the day, but... Yeah, even visually you can't judge that no and that's why this paper concludes and this is the (laughs) coaching message is practically coaches should be cautious when recommending biomechanical adjustments without considering the interconnected factors related to such changes so you could say I'm going to fix her beer I'm going to make even better by changing Mm -hmm. that arm movement and getting her to look more compact but, but that might kick off some chain of things that ultimately cancels out and even overrides but like a Berry could run a two sixteen marathon, if not faster. I mean, they were they were Boston course. Yes, she's got a track little, record. It wasn't the perfect that. conditions and so on. So and she's got a half marathon performance in the sixty fives, maybe even faster than that. So she she will have a running economy that is as good as any other athletes in the world. I mean, it's not that's for sure. Those top five will all be really really similar, in my opinion. That's why they're there. So mm. if you want, if the best prediction of whether your running economy is high is how fast you are. Mm. So you know she's going to be... Anyway, I thought it was really interesting is that we should be a little bit cautious about judging a book by its yeah. cover, as it were. Well, she's a two-time Olympic 5,000-meter champion and uh, at the Olympic Games. So, I mean, she's yeah, she's clearly got the class. So you're mm. right. Maybe we are judging form wrongly. Yeah, you know? exactly. Or we all do, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, and then you could have made the same case for Paula Radcliffe's head. Yes. Um, and there's a number of athletes. I mean, Kipchoge also looks incredibly symmetrical and compact, and he obviously does have really good running economy. But the guy from Tanzania who ended up second, yeah, yeah. looks more loping. Like, but that's mm. again, we have these ideas of what it should look like, and we can't necessarily see because remember, it's it's determined by metabolic efficiency ultimately, because mm. it's what's the demand at the level of the muscle on a cellular level. Mm. That's what determines the running economy, and. <laughs> I think we look at it more crudely from outside and it's actually inside. Yeah. So. yeah, interesting one. Right, so let's get on to our subject of our podcast today. And uh, our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Eirik Helvesson Rick, who is a Norwegian researcher based here in uh, Stellenbosch. He's here for a while and uh, he's got his, he comes from the Institute of Sport and Exercise Medicine in Stellenbosch University. And his focus is very much on youth Development mm. and particularly when talking not not about necessarily sport development but actually physiological development of them. So fascinating talking to him because he really gives us a great insight. First of all, into how boys and girls mature differently, and also the challenges of early maturing athletes versus late maturing athletes. Yeah, so I I know him through Stellenbosch because I'm also affiliated with the same department as him, and he approached us earlier this year because he was he's doing this research that he mentions in our chat with him where he's using this novel ultrasound technique to measure skeletal age why mm. would you want to know skeletal age well stick around because he'll tell you three main reasons for it and so he pitched this proposal to the athletes that i work with in that endurocad academy 
And we discussed it and, and we eventually decided that we wouldn't go with it because we weren't 100% sure of its benefits and so on. Then I bumped into him and I spent 20 minutes chatting with him. And I thought, no, this is actually, this, this, this stuff's too interesting not to do. So we pitched it back to the coaches again in the form of a, a session that Eric did with them where he explained what we titled what every coach needs to know about maturation and growth in young athletes. And it is so fascinating because it's, it's like a piece of the puzzle it's, it's, a big, it's more than just a piece of the puzzle. It's, sometimes it's almost like the foundation on which the puzzle gets built is this is a 15-year-old, but how mature are they really physically? Mm. They're not all 15-year-olds are the same. And it's not just genetics that makes them different. Some of them are equivalent to 12 and some of them equivalent to 18. It's remarkable. Mm. And then injury risk flows from that. Your talent ID and your selection flows from that. Your performance capabilities come out of that. So if you are a parent or coach of a young athlete and you don't have at least some understanding, it doesn't mean you have to act on it necessarily, but you have to know that it's there. This concept of difference in biological growth, you're, you're, you're effectively guessing what's going to happen next. And so it's, it's for me, a fascinating part of the mm. whole picture of how we bring up and manage young athletes. Really good. So one of the things that we're going to put um, on our social media is just a little diagram that comes from a presentation that uh, Eric put in, which shows you the growth, normal growth amongst girls and boys, which we'll do on our social media. And it's, it's very interesting to see as we get into the discussion exactly how things are different um, between those two sexes. But here mm. he is, our guest for today. So Eric, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's always nice to have an, uh, what do we call it, a, a Norwegian, what is the area up there called? Nordic, Nordic accent. Uh, we, we were talking about this a little bit before you, you, love the accent, you joined. So. We love the accent because it kind of feels like the kind of accent you want to listen to as you go to sleep at night. It's a very peaceful accent. So it's lovely to have you here with us in the studio as well, which is great, not via Zoom or anything like that. Welcome. I know you're based in Stellenbosch at the moment in Cape Town. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Just tell us what you're doing mm-hmm. now. So I'm working as a postdoctoral researcher. So it's essentially, it's, it's like a temporary research position where you, you get a bit of free reigns to, to explore your, your own research and uh, yeah, essentially practice being a better researcher in, within the topics you like. So I'm with the Institute of Sport and Exercise Medicine um, at Stellenbosch University, um, led by Prof. Wayne Derman. So mm-hmm. yeah, very lucky to be here and um, spent a year and a half already trying to set some projects up. And are you a runner or a cyclist or anything like that? What do you What do you do in your spare time when you're not yeah. researching? <laughs> I think I think uh, I, earlier I would have said I was a football player. Now yeah. I'm more of a triathlete. So, okay. uh, yeah, mostly running, uh, cycling, swimming, and, mm. and some uh, so do gym you, work. So do you, you, you go with all those guys that train at Stellenbosch University. They've got, I know, Flora Duffy sometimes is there training, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say I'm quite that level. Yeah, I'm, I'm very recreational, but uh, yeah, training with the Stellenbosch triathlon squad, yeah. so that's, that's good yeah. support there. Yeah. It's great fun. A good place to be here when you're training, I suppose. A good place yeah. to do research, I guess, as well. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm, tell, so, us, tell us about your, your journey to there, because yeah. I know you've mm. come, you've, you're moving from north to south. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I mean, uh, I guess I, I, I've always been interested in sports. I, in Norway, we have this like sports high school program where you're, you're doing proper high school, but you also get to focus on sports subjects like physiology and coaching and stuff like that. In in high school. Uh, in high school, yeah. Really? So, wow. so you get your qualifications to go to university, but you can you can add on some subjects that I found very interesting at that, wow. that age. And uh, yeah, from there I I, I went uh, to study uh, at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. So I think I went in not really knowing 
uh, I guess most sports scientists, you go in because you're passionate about it and you, you like it, but you don't really know what it's going to lead to. Um, but yeah, I eventually did a master's degree in exercise physiology, um, one year teaching degree before I started my PhD in, uh, in Qatar through the same university in Norway. So that What was, was your PhD on? So it was on uh, injuries in youth football and athletics and how growth and maturity may affect uh, the risk of sustaining an injury. Okay. Yeah. Kind of that's what we're going to be talking about a bit today. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting things. is there's a Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. I mean, that mm. must be one of the few places in the world where you've actually got a whole institute focused on schools, sports science, isn't it? I mean, I, I can't think of another country that has that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, I don't know, but uh, mm. it's, it's really a unique setting. It's, it's a really beautiful place as well. And you've got obviously lots of people who enjoy sports, but you know, all different directions. You have sociology, you have the psychology mm. and physical education, performance, mm. uh, all of those things. So it's, it's a really nice place and it's right next to the Olympic Training Center. So you, sure. you have a lot of expertise, like in a very focused area there. What's interesting when I think about Norwegians, I just think of guys doing cross-country skiing, and that's all you do. I mean, is is and biathlon, of course. Yeah. What are the major sports in in Norway? I mean, what what do they teach at school? What do they play? Yeah, so I think uh, I think you're right with the cross-country skiing. That's kind of our our thing. National uh, Yeah. So you know, everyone goes out when yeah. one or two years old, and you know, you go with your parents, and then. You more or less like it, but you're forced to. Uh, some people like it more than others, and then you go through a phase where you might not like it that much, and then you, you rediscover it for yourself. So, uh, but but obviously that's a very uh, seasonal sport. So it's, it's mainly January to to March, maybe mm. April. Mm. Um, but I think I think football or soccer is is probably the main sport, along with handball, which isn't that common down here, but it's a very popular sport in Norway. Got a couple of triathlon champions. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah, true. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe it's become more popular after that. Uh, mm. I wouldn't say it was very popular probably when they started. So, in fact, yeah, Ironman and Olympic, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm yeah. just trying to think of the Austin Blumenfeld and then yes. Eden. Eden. Yeah. 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 So that's both ends of the triathlon spectrum yeah. covered. Plus yeah. a really good 400 meter hurdler. Mm. Mm. And a golf player, tennis player, True. football player. So suddenly, so, suddenly Norway's become so a good really nation. Good. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and one of the happiest nations in the world, apparently. Uh, yeah, apparently. According yeah. to the stats. <laughs> I'll, I'll <laughs> says Eric from South Africa with <laughs> yes. a, yeah. a Paga as all favorite to <laughs> Anyway, so let's get uh, into the subject today. And, you, and you've led into it a little bit here. But mm. we're going to talk a little bit about the, 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 the school sports, young athletes, youth development. My first question to you is, why is it important to look at the details of youth and sport development? Well, I think we've got to kind of always try to keep the angle in mind and that angle can be a bit different depending on who you are. Some might mm. want to participate in sports because it's fun and they just want to enjoy it. Others have very serious you know, performance goals or they want to reach the top level. Um, and then maybe from a societal level, you, you want to, to teach people to be active and enjoy uh, long, uh, lifelong participation in, in physical activity. So I think for everyone, uh, it is of every, uh, everyone will be interested in keeping athletes active for as long as possible to reach those goals, whatever they are. And so, I mean, just give us an idea of where your interest is specifically mm. in this sort of youth development area. Yeah, so I'm, I'm quite interested in, in the variations that happen uh, in the adolescent years. So typically from 10, maybe up to 19 years. 
um, where there's, there's so much going on uh, at different times and people grow and they mature at different rates and um, yeah and there, there's just so much happening mm. and it's actually really fascinating when you, when you look at how much that can affect uh, things like injury risk and performance and selection to teams so um, I think my passion came a bit I've always been coaching youth teams. So I've quite um, I enjoyed that, um, but it's also like you. It's a topic everyone can relate to in a way. Mm. Like everyone has their own story. I, I was the classic late developer, so I wasn't very tall at 15, 16, but then grew quite tall. In the and you're end, tall so. now, just for those. Yeah, of you and, and I, I can use that as an excuse for not <laughs> making it as a footballer. Uh, it's definitely not the reason, but yeah, it's like yeah. The, the, the thing about it is that we've set up, for better or worse, and usually for worse, a system that makes its most important selections and decisions at exactly the time of people's lives that they're changing the most mm. in sport. So the trajectory, the path that you one day as a 25-year-old look back on and say 10 years ago, the following three things happened to me. Those three things happened to you at a time that you were changing rapidly and so were all your peers. And so I suppose that I suppose, and we've t- discussed this on the podcast before, right? It's this, it's the, it's the, it's the gambling mindset where you're basically putting bets on people mm. before you know where the chips are going to land. You know, you know what I mean. And that's why it's so important, I think, to understand exactly what's happening in that time, so that you can make those gambles <laughs> or those educated guesses in a more educated way, right? That's the that's the point here. Is can we be better? Mm at making decisions and that's that includes talent ID and then what you do once you've selected your, your talent mm. yeah and I mean we're going to talk a lot of course about the physiology which is your area of speciality but I mean one of the things which we often don't consider is the emotional maturity of these athletes as well I mean I don't know whether you can comment on that mm. because it's a it's yeah. an area where you know hormones or hormones are going mad at that point for, for for girls it's 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 a big change in their life for boys a bit late development and, and a slightly later development than girls but it, it's there's a lot of emotional stuff happening there that people often don't take into account yeah for sure and uh, I think I, I, I'm in no way an expert on the psychology of it it's more I know mm. of I, I don't really know it but yeah you're right like it's typically associated with more risk-taking behavior and, and mm. more of a you place more importance on your peers uh, rather than yeah mm. and um, yeah your forward mm. planning abilities might not be as developed as they will later on so there's definitely a big psychological component uh, to it as well mm-hmm. so let's let's kick off with some of the details now one of the examples that I heard a while back was talking about the fact that a, a 13 14 year old female athlete is probably the most efficient body type you can get because they are still light they've matured a little bit more than the boys and they are super good at 13 14 that's why we see a lot of in South Africa in particular we see a lot of 13 14 15 year old girls really doing well in athletics and then they get to 19 20 21 when they've matured and they're suddenly not as good as they used to be <coughs> just comment a little bit about from your research how boys and girls develop differently and the process that those levels happen at yeah so um it's it's most of this, this knowledge isn't necessarily from my research but there, there's been really good uh, studies going on like to do this properly is a very difficult area so you have mm. to follow kids ideally you know from from before puberty to after puberty which you can imagine is really difficult yeah so but you you have some good research um projects that have done that uh, in the past and and that's where a lot of this knowledge is coming from and I mean, the, the, the key, I guess, is that growth isn't linear. So, you know, you don't develop at the same 
rate uh, throughout your adolescent years mm -hmm. uh, and that those changes are a bit different from uh, boys to girls in, in general. Like there will be lots of inter-individual variation, of course, but on average there are, there are these differences between boys and girls. And yeah, uh, to your point about the 14-year-old female athlete, I, I guess it's it's a very specific example. Maybe it's it's true for athletics, but uh, I think it's also quite sport-specific. But mm -hmm. yeah, there might be might be that element that they they've gone further, but uh, than the boys at that point. Perhaps. So, so girls do develop physically. Ahead of boys, is that yeah, uh, right? approximately two years is, is kind of the wow. uh, rule of thumb. Yeah, can you just to take a step back? Can you define growth as distinct from maturity, maturation? Yeah, uh, so if, if you follow what's kind of accepted in the literature now, Bob Molina wrote a, a really nice book uh, along with some colleagues on on growth, maturation, physical activity, and they. Uh, they define growth as a change in size, so either of the whole body or as a or a, a body part. So it's, it's quite a simple, um, in a way, concept, mm. where it's just a change in a say its height or leg length or or body mass. And then maturity is a bit different, so that's like a progress towards a mature state or adult state. So you're kind of going from being a child to being an adult, and and that depends on the different organ systems that are involved so you, so you might look at different indicators and and things mm. happen a bit uh yeah not necessarily at the same time for everyone there mm. and what, what is what is mm. when you talk about that growth how do you know when somebody has reached a state of maturity versus somebody that is still getting there mm. how do you know that so it depends on the on the system so typically in in sports and exercise science you you've used three main organ systems so the skeletal system the sexual uh, or sexual maturity and the somatic system so um, if you look at uh, sexual maturity is when you have a full reproductive function that's the definition of the mature state mm -hmm. um, and typically you use uh, pubertal stages such as the t tanner staging probably more known as mm. where you can say okay this is where puberty starts and then you reach the the end point where okay now we're we're done with this this um, development mm. and then our maturity and then yeah, the skeletal system is a bit difficult or different. So you have the skeleton um, pretty much going from uh, cartilage to uh, like calcified, ossified bone. So, so that's how you define uh, a mature skeleton is when it's, it's gone from cartilage to bone. Um, ah. And then the um, somatic maturity would be you've reached your adult height. So when you when you plateau and you you don't grow anymore, that's that's your adult. Uh, or mature state. And so do those systems operate mm. together? In other words, if you've reached sex maturity and your heart is where it's going to be and it's plateaued, therefore is your skeletal system then mature? Is it, or does it all work linear? Or does the skeletal mm. maturation happen ahead of the other two systems? No, I say they, they do operate differently. Uh, going into details, I, I, I wouldn't know necessarily exactly what it is, but uh, it, it does operate a bit differently. And you'll see that uh, different landmarks such as like reaching your peak height velocity or where you grow the most happens uh, typically at the same stages of sexual maturity within most uh, kids within a gender. But then mm. there's also differences between genders in there. Uh, so 
It is a bit uh, messy, and I think you, you uh, if you want to have like a, a really good answer to this, you probably need a pediatrician who, who studies this specifically. I mean, the reason yeah. why I asked that, using an example of those 13, 14 year old mm. girls that are potentially not sexually mature at that point, but seem to be physically very mature mm. um, compared to their male counterparts, is that mm. that seems to be quite common. I, I suspect sexual um, maturation happens quite in advance of the skeleton. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, honestly, I, I don't feel yeah. Yeah. Yeah, too I mean, confident about that. Sport, yeah. Yeah, sexual yeah, maturation yeah. is irrelevant yeah, okay. to the purposes of sport. So, mm. but but you, you did mention one there about peak height velocity, and that yeah. did peak height velocity became really central to everything in youth development. They used it as a talent ID tool. They were using it as a training guide when we should when we should load the skeleton more and so forth maybe you can just explain a little bit about what that concept means mm. for people who haven't heard of it and aren't familiar with how to maybe optimize it yeah so so i mean peak height velocity is essentially the the time where where the growth rate is the fastest so it means you're gaining the most within a period of time so growth rates can be around 10 to 12 centimeters within a year um around that time and yeah, in boys, that's typically around 13, 14 years, and in girls, two years before that. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, it's it's a, it's a marker of maturity timing. So age at peak height velocity would be a, an indicator of your, your timing of maturity. And yeah, you can use that to, to then classify athletes as either having going through the growth spurt, having passed it already, or having it in front of them. Um, so, so that's how it's been used in practice. So, so practically, it was done then that you'd measure the height of a kid on the same day every year, and you'd say, right, this four centimeters taller from 2019 to 20, then four centimeters from 20 to 21, and now in 22, 10 centimeters tall. Yeah, but you'd only um, know that it was the peak a year <laughs> after it had occurred. Yeah, so, so how did they yeah. operationalize that? So that's a that's a challenge with with height. Is uh, if you if you truly want to know it, you need to follow them mm. throughout puberty and adolescence, and uh, requires uh, yeah serial measurements more more than one measure to truly find your your peak. But obviously in sports we don't have time for that. We want answers right away, preferably mm. tomorrow. Uh, so then people have come up with estimating equations on where you can approximate where where you are in relation to that that peak height velocity and and you, you mentioned now so from peak height velocity then you start to your 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 growth rate declines again until it eventually becomes zero and that's when you nod your foot full adult height right yeah is the period from peak to that point relatively consistent or does it vary as much as the period it took to get to peak in the first place you know what i'm saying is, yeah no, is there I, variation I saying, beyond yeah. peak height velocity as well i mean i mean there is a variation in how long the whole growth spurt takes um mm. i i don't remember exactly how how that works but it's mm. uh, uh there, there definitely is some different uh, yeah some differences uh, mm. in terms of how long your growth spurt lasts as well mm. what's interesting is that you talk about those three systems but mm. Just from an outsider's perspective, I would have thought that the muscular system would be the real measure of performance-based. In other words, mm. if you could measure a 14-year-old who has a developed muscular system, that would be the first thing that would say, well, that person is going to be a is ahead of their, bio, their, their, their actual mm. numerical age versus being somebody who is behind it. I mean, can you, can you look at muscular maturation as, as a measure of any kind? Uh, um, I think it would relate to your, your sexual maturity because mm. 
the product or the um, the development of muscle would be regulated by mm. the sexual hormones and so it's totally uh, there was yeah. a relationship between that and can we find one? But the other the other thing about the muscle, I remember, is that it's really plastic; it can be changed a lot mm. over time. So it's, it it would be more, I suspect, variable in response to the outside environment and what the person's doing with skeleton will be but maybe not as much remember ryan hall was a 206 marathon runner now he's a crossfit he looks like a different human being and that yeah. was in adulthood so muscle would be very specific to the sport and also highly affected i would have thought by what you do in training and so therefore it's probably not a really reliable gauge of physical development independent of training which is what you actually want mm. i think yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ross was mentioning that there's a system or a, or a way of measuring skeletal maturity. How, mm. how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so traditionally, it's been you can use uh, you can use X-rays, you can use MRI, and you can use ultrasound. That's maybe the the most common ones. And I guess X-rays of the hand and wrists has been the kind of preferred one, especially in sports. So. But yeah, you'd have to 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 go to um, a center with a you know, with the correct mm. equipment and a, a person that's trained to take the uh, the picture, and then you need someone to interpret it. You can use software for that as well now, but it's it's typically it's um, it's costly. Uh, it's not so logistically uh, useful, uh, mm-hmm. and it's um, yeah, it's it's a bit operator dependent. Uh, in addition to the radiation, which. You know, some have argued it's, it's negligible, but but anytime there's radiation involved with with kids, you have to be careful, and, and ethics committees are are often a bit um, hesitant about approving that if it's not for uh, clinical uh, suspicion of, of some pathology. So so getting it purely for a, a, a talent identification purpose or or performance um, measure, then then it's not. Um, so easy to get it. Yeah, it's not um, feasible. Yeah. yeah, so so that's why. But now now they have there have been some developments in, in technology in terms of ultrasound. So um, yeah, uh, we've we've recently got a, a device from that's made in uh, Israel uh, by a company called Sonicbone that uh, that that can measure your, your skeletal age by uh, using ultrasound. So it's it's relatively quick, non-invasive. Um, yeah, and gives a a decent estimate, but it's, it's still new. But uh, yeah, from what I've seen, it looks looks very useful. So, so give us a sense now. You a fourteen year old mm. comes in and has this measurement done. What is the range of growth and maturation difference that you might find in someone who's chronologically fourteen? Mm. How big a yeah, t- typically is is he during puberty? You can you can have a range of six years in terms of biological age or skeletal age. So it means yeah, say you have a twelve year old, you you could have a biological nine year old or a biological yeah, um, mm. I guess that would be fifteen year old. Yeah. yeah. So, so six years in terms of biological age. Which, that's the spread. Um, that's the spread. Yeah. So wow. yeah, and that's profound, right? Because now you're a parent <laughs> listening to this with a twelve year old. Who's playing sports against twelve-year-olds? But yours might be biologically nine. Mm. Yeah, playing against fifteen-year-olds, and then that's where the selections are being made for who gets high school scholarships, who gets into first teams, who gets best coaching, best equipment. You know. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got three years to make up on your peers. 
So, I mean, the suggestion is then that if that person is ahead of their, the curve, mm. the other people that are behind the curve are eventually going to catch them up in it when they're all mature. Is, am I assuming that correctly? Yeah. The, so I think like in, in any other, um, say, context that that isn't that big of a pro- problem, it might be related to certain psychological mm. aspects as well, yeah. as, just stuff I've heard about. But like in sports, the, the problem is that you might not be in the system by, at that point because... You know, it has is a, it has really big performance effects, um, and yeah, your, your coaches just tend to prefer, um, yeah, either earlier, later, or matures, depending on the sport, really. Yeah, and that's why it's not a maturation issue, but you know, the relative age effect, where in junior teams, children born in January, February, March are overrepresented compared to October, November, December. That's just because the 9, 10, 11 months difference that it makes mm. at the age of 10, 11, 12 is already big enough. Now overlay a six-year spread onto that. Mm. Mm. And then you've got a coach who's making his pick. What's he picking? Of course, he's picking the biggest, the strongest, the fastest. And at the age of 11, 12, that says nothing about future potential. It only says about what's happened in the past. Makes sense, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's the massive inefficiency in sport. It's the best athletes may never get a look in. Mm. I think it's yeah. I was just like on the relative age effect. I think that's also like over the re- last few years because mm. uh, those terms get mixed up quite a lot. And I think it's becoming more and more clear that relative age and biological maturity they're not the same and mm. they they operate independently. So yeah. so one may be more important early on in life. That would be the relative age, right. uh, whereas maturity would be more relevant when when puberty hits. Yeah, I mean, if you're making yeah. decisions at seven, eight years old, ten months of the year mm. is fifteen percent of your life that you're different, just by time. Mm. Now, a twelve-year-old, three years either side because of biolo- biological factors, it's a massive, massive yeah, thing. You can add on a two-year age band in, uh, as well. Right. Uh, some sports, then you've got a. So you're looking almost like a, dec- <laughs> a decade spread in terms of variables. Okay, if you right. take the extremes, I guess, mm. yeah, you'd end up with an uh, eight-year difference. If you have yeah. Uh, a, a, yeah, under 14, then you'd have yeah. a, a 12-year-old versus a 14-year-old potentially. And then if you have the max yeah. ranges of them again, then... The 14-year-old yeah. is <laughs> actually 17 biologically and the 12-year-old is actually nine. Mm. Yeah. That's an eight-year. But yeah, no, but it is, it is important to keep them a bit separate and, yeah. and people mix them up yeah. all the time. Right. And it's, 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 I think it's the key is like relative age is time. So everything that... Mm-hmm. Exposure, Chronology. you know, you, you do it more than then it helps with time. Whereas maturity is made mainly genetics, but yeah. could be yeah. nutrition as well. Yeah, yeah. so when we will park mm. that nutrition because I wanted yeah. to get onto that a mm. bit later. But but yeah, I guess the so then you, when you think about it from the perspective of who you eventually watch playing sport on a Saturday afternoon, they've made it because they have great abilities, but they've they've been selected out because of something in the beginning that didn't really matter, but it was the only thing we could assess. Mm. And so that population comes from a much smaller percentage or proportion of the overall population than it could have done otherwise if we find a better way to delay that selection. Mm. Mm. Anyway, one of the things that you've mentioned in the slides is there's a slide where you show how 12-year-olds who are at the top level and then what they do when they come Mm. to adults, a very small percentage. Just take us through that process. When when Mm. does the, the, the younger group end up being at the top level in the in the mature group? And in other words, when you're selecting your future champions, when should you actually be looking at the, their potential to go through to maturity? I mean, if you only think about biological maturity, you'd want to wait until everyone's reached the mature state. But I mean, that's that's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, so it's not that realistic. But that would be the ideal situation, I think. Like the example you mentioned, that was from an Italian study. So they looked at high jumpers and long jumpers, and you saw the. 
I think uh, there's a very poor rate of top level 13 year olds making it to the top level at the senior level. So, mm. and then that gets a bit better as you get to to ages 16, 17, because more people probably have reached their mature state, and uh, and you can probably better say that they will also be a good adult athlete. Yeah. So just we, I did look at these figures. It's like top athletes at 12, only 10% are top athletes as adults. Sure. Among girls, that goes up to in the range of fifty to sixty percent by the time they're top athletes at fifteen, sixteen years old. The other problem there, of course, is that by that stage you've already invested three years more from twelve to fifteen into coaching this athlete, and so you create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, they're going to be more likely to succeed because they're the only people you've worked with. Mm-hmm. All the ones you didn't work with are now doing something else. Mm-hmm whatever mm-hmm. the sport is swimming or okay it's not going to be swimming that's when you have to start very young triathlons running whatever so that's the problem yeah, yeah. it's the and same in sport specific yeah. so you know this yeah. example very power-based sports yeah. you know, long jump high jump but mm. you know it might be completely different in, in diving or gymnastics in south africa we have three age grade competitions where you pick national teams which is absurd one of them's 13 crazy 16 also and then 18 which is i think where you should do it and i've seen the data on this is that only about 20%, 24 to be precise, of the players who are picked in our best under 13 crop are also in our best under 18 crop. That's not even into adulthood. Then it'll drop off way more, right? Because there's a massive bottleneck from youth into adult. There's only 100 professional contracts in South African rugby. But only 24% go from 13 to 18, <laughs> which means that 76% vanish somewhere in the system. <laughs> They're not there anymore. And so that's an example of that inefficiency. And do you think that those people vanish really because they are biologically early maturers? I mean, is it? I mean, I know they're probably uh, guessing it a little bit, but is it a fair <laughs> hypothesis to suggest that? It's it's, it's so complex. So that's why, like, okay, I, I I know a bit about maturity, but you know, so it's really easy for me to to associate everything or around uh, that. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the only thing that matters. But like, the truth is, it's so complex, and you know, people lose interest as well. Like, mm-hmm. if you if you go back to just being tired of like being training every morning or, or every night or mm. like those things also matter or wanting to spend more time with, with in school or or having to spend more time in school in some places or mm. yeah just wanting to spend time with friends mm. so i mean maturity plays a role uh in selection i'm i'll be fairly confident in saying that but yeah there are definitely other factors then mm. i just mean into. 76 out of 100 vanish. I, I used to call them ghosts, you know, because mm-hmm. they obviously had some early athletic ability and maybe they still do, but now they're sort of ghosts that haunt your system with its inefficiencies. But there'll be 76 stories, mm-hmm. you know, had to move towns, the coach passed away, uh, yeah, money injury. issues, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So loads of different reasons, but there's no doubt mm-hmm. that maturation is one of the things the system should try and control for when making those selections. That's, I think, the point. Mm-hmm. And as for parents, what so, so mm. what would you advise then a parent of a late developing child? Like, what would you yeah. have told you? What would you have mm. told yourself? You said you were a late developer. Yeah, so. uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess you really have to be patient, and uh, you have to be very convinced that you're going to catch up later. Mm. Uh, and then you have to try to put yourself in a position where you don't lose out. Because if you don't get selected to the team you have to try to kind of think okay this is not the end of it mm. but that's really challenging same football if you if you go to uh you, you try out with the best team in the in their area and you don't make it 
that's very easy to say, okay, well, that didn't work. Uh, let's let's quit or let's do something else or or you end up you know playing by yourself and which is less ideal than maybe playing with others. So mm. I think just and I, and I think that's where a lot of these these uh, I say guidelines, especially in Norway, so it's about keeping people in the system for as long mm. as possible because mm. you don't know who's going to end up being yeah. good in the end. And there are so many ways to get to the end. Um, that yeah. you just have to keep people active. Like and so how, so how do they do that? No, you mentioned noise specifically. Yeah. How, how do they do that? Um, so I think I think one important thing is they don't have competitions or rankings before they're 13, uh, which is... I remember when I was 12, like we, we knew who was winning and losing and <laughs> we didn't maybe understand it. I, th- I think I understand it better now, but but that's one way of not focusing on you know, selection and, and high performance at that age. Do you remember, um, sorry, to, do you remember we discussed this we like discussed a month ago this, yeah, because actually. Danny Kay, who's an English scrum off, posted that he'd gone to his kids, he's played, mm. going to watch his 13 year old play and they didn't have scoreboard. They just played. Mm. And we then spoke about on the podcast, you don't want to know how many Instagram and tweet messages I got saying how we woke and we soft and we PC for, <laughs> for suggesting that that was mm. the way to go. Mm. People don't understand mm. that that's, actually, the, this is the most, this is the most aggressive thing you can do for performance is to not focus on the decisions out of the result. You know what mm. I mean? Like, mm. But people have become obsessed with the, the result. Mm. Teach them early, teach them young, they'll learn how to lose. Well, yeah, but then what? Mm. You <laughs> lose think, a lot of people yeah. in the process. Exactly. And, and having fun. I think like to me, mm. having fun is probably the, the most important element. Exactly. No one's going to keep doing it if they don't enjoy it. Or you have to be really strong-willed if you if you are. Maybe that's why I didn't make it. Because uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was fun, but not that fun. Mm. Uh, and, you know, yeah, so I, I know in Norway, we our, our whole sports system is based around parents coaching. Like, there's not a lot of professional coaches in younger age groups. Maybe more now. Um, and maybe one good thing there is that parents are quite good at, at you know, understanding kids and, mm. and making them feel... Uh, feel good there, there it might be the other way around as well that they don't have the sports background so they don't understand how to to include everyone and in, in mm. organize training sessions but it sounds uh, like yeah. parents are well informed about the, the strategy behind young athletes yeah i think there's a i mean it's difficult difficult to compare cultures obviously in norway everyone has a really good opportunity to succeed in other areas so no one is forced to do sports to you know, maybe make mm. it uh, economically, or uh, there isn't that incentive. So I think, I think we're quite good at uh, making it in- enjoyable, and then mm. people do get frustrated that it's not professional enough, and start, for example, football academies, and and some have success with that, some some don't. So, um, but I think I think the the overall sort of understanding is that you can, you can be specializing from eight and make it and you can specialize from 20 and make it so mm-hmm. so yeah so it's tricky like so say someone's listening to this now and they're, they're the parents of a kid in a country that plays rugby much trickier to keep your child as a late developer viable in rugby because you almost have to be in a team to be able to play the games get the coaching and so forth I'd suggest mm. there's other sports, particularly individual sports, where it's a little bit easier, where you can you can still get them the necessary support so that as Eric says, they don't lose out. But it must be must be a proper dilemma for a parent whose kid at 13, 14 is just not with their peers. Mm. Enormously mm. challenging. I mean, no, I, I mean I think I I'm 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 very much like you, Eric, in terms of my development. I was a late developer and one of my most traumatic 
moments at school was when we used to stand up on the at, at the school swimming gala and you'd be standing there with all the lads in their speedos and some of the guys were fully mature and I was basically just a, mm. a, a nine-year-old in a, in a 14-year-old body and emotionally that was quite tough because some <laughs> yeah. of the guys had hairs on their chest and were shaving once a day and I was like, like I had nothing you know so no, I, can, I can relate to that emotionally <laughs> it, was, it was tough and I think yeah. that's that's part of it that it, you know when, you, when you're young it's really tough to deal with that because mm-hmm. you, you, you think you're a boy amongst men and I, I imagine it's the same amongst the girls as well yeah, yeah, mm. and uh, they probably have different challenges as well. Yeah. So, do they yeah. do they facilitate multiple participation in? Oh, sorry, participation mm. in multiple sports as well in Norway? Because I think yeah. that's the other strategy that parents should be thinking about all the time. Is given what we know about maturation and what we know at the end about how certain sports select body types and physical capabilities, the idea that you can pick a sport before you hit that maturation point is ridiculous. Mm. Mm. You got to you got to keep your options open as long as you can mm. yeah I, I think we could still do better at that mm. uh, i think people are very open to it until a certain age and then then when people start getting serious maybe they're 14 15 then mm. you know coaches put pressure to, to maybe maybe quit a sport I, I i would say that's my understanding of of the setting mm. there uh, obviously it might differ depending on where you are but yeah yeah it's, it's also a matter of i think the coaches feel a lot of fairness issues that if you have players who show up to every session and then you have some that you know you play a different sport twice a week they feel that they can't justify them also playing the same amount of uh, time in matches uh, mm. there's there's a lot to consider even if it might be the ideal way forward it doesn't mean it's the, the easy way in practice mm. uh, to do that i once heard the worst one i ever heard was someone saying that if you don't if you don't specialize and play one sport at 14 there's no way you can get your 10,000 hours in by the time you're 24. Mm, which we know is wrong. Which we know is wrong. <laughs> and so they were driving an agenda of 10,000 hours, which then necessitates specialization from 14. Because 10 years of 10,000 hours is three hours a day, basically. Mm. You can't do anything other than, I mean, you barely you can barely do school if mm. you did that. So anyway, that's us stupid that's people. That's been debunked quite, quite I hope so, times, but yeah. a lot of people still buy into it. So yeah, yeah. anyway, that's, that's talent ID, mm. like, and that's how maturation informs and potentially misinforms talent ID. Can we maybe talk a little bit about the other really fascinating area, which is how injuries in mm. young athletes are determined in part by risks created by maturation, yeah. the stages of maturation. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, and I, I'm also, I also think that's, that's very interesting, as, as especially coming from, a, I, I don't have a medical background, so I've never you know, treated an injury, and I don't know the pathologies very well, but I, I spent a lot of time in a, in a sports medicine clinic, in a sports academy, among you know, physios and, and, and top-level researchers and doctors. So, uh, so I mean, what we kind of managed to, to quantify and present in a very well good way is, is something that people have known before and have shown before but that injury patterns change over t- uh, with age and uh, probably depending on their maturity status so things like how mature you are uh, in, in a certain part of your body might uh, determine the type of injury you get uh, if that makes sense and so if you're for, going through a growth spurt yeah, 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 yeah so yeah. I, I mean yeah, I guess it's again it's, it's going back to understanding how the body mm. matures. Mm. So uh, typically, the bones lower in the body or closer to the ground mature at an early age than bones higher up in the in the body. So hmm. the the heel, for example, will mature at an earlier age than the knee and the hip, 
and and some some like the pubic uh, apophysis or the the pubic bone doesn't even fuse until yeah into early 20s for boys so you can still be considered skeletally immature in some parts of your body in your 20s whereas other parts of your body might be fully say mature mm. wow so okay, your feet yeah. your feet grow fastest earliest yeah they have they have kind of had their growth spurt a bit quicker yeah, yeah. probably what... because it's weight bearing uh right. we think evolutionary it's probably and then it sort of moves up from the yeah. ground heel yeah to be a uh, knee if you, if you think of it like in a very average you know yeah, overall yeah. way yeah. of thinking yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and, and so that, that's why my five-year-old daughters have to change her shoes every five minutes because she's great. So the feet, yeah, yeah. and so you think so evolutionary-wise, mm. that was the, the reason why it's from the ground up is purely because you you want to be stronger from the ground up because that's where the impact is. I, probably, I, I yeah. wouldn't know, but that, that's yeah, that would be my guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then and so and, and then, then injuries like obviously yeah. now you get yeah. you get like Osgood Schladders at the mm. knee. There, there was one at the heel with yeah, Severs disease. That's the one. Yeah. So so you get these typical like you call them growth-related injuries. Uh, because they've been associated with a period where you where you grow fast, and uh, it's essentially the growth plates. So it's kind of the areas in the body where 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 the growth happens, both in in, in length but also in in shape. Um, those areas are a bit more vulnerable. Uh, so so they might be vulnerable both to overuse. So you might get uh, yeah, irritations or you call apophysitis, but but also they're also vulnerable to to like large forces that might like peel off or tear mm. off uh, a part of the bone so so that is considered a vulnerable site in in immature athletes so you see more of those injuries in athletes who aren't fully mature yeah. so young girl gymnast mm. quite a high load landing running jumping all the time mm. does that I think it's fairly obvious that that loading will increase the risk of injury. Does it change the growth of the the maturation pattern of the skeleton? So I think uh, in extreme cases it might. Yeah. I, I I think the consensus now is that you know training isn't dangerous for growth, and okay. same with strength training doesn't you yeah, know, stunt that your growth. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, as long as it's you know supervised and and by trained or practitioners mm. who, who know you know basic training principles of progression. Mm. And, and so the risk is the risk is more an injury, a chronic or an acute injury, yeah. than it is a stunting of growth. <laughs> yeah, I mean you could. Um, like you had, you have these growth plates that that determine your or that uh, are responsible for your your growth in length. If they, for example, get a, a fracture through it, right. uh, or if you have an like extreme load that disturbs the blood supply, then that that might you know lead to some growth disturbances. But um, yeah, uh, again, I, I don't think it's the main concern for most people. But mm. but yeah, you you've seen that in in divers, for example, or gymnasts in the wrists, mm-hmm. a lot of load, loading on their growth plates in the wrists, and uh, climbers in their fingers, uh, yeah, shoulders and baseball. So there might be disturbances to growth. Like th- that is something you have to consider. Uh, mm. Worst case. Uh, so for example, if my child mm. daughter son is a runner, I'm just hypothesizing here, they are more likely to be mature at an earlier age as a as somebody using the lower half of their body than somebody that is participating, as you just mentioned, mm. in something like <laughs> baseball where they have to throw a ball or play a racket sport or something like that where there is I mean is it is that a is that a bit of a stretch to yeah I don't, I don't I think it's mainly <laughs> genetics. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I wouldn't I, I don't think the sport would affect your your maturity um, mm. or your progression of maturity but 
um, yeah, it might it might predispose you or make you more selectable if you want to to certain sports. But uh, the reason why I'm mentioning yeah. it is if I have a a son or a daughter that's very mm. good at say for instance uh, golf or mm. a racket sport. Um, and they suddenly get a shoulder injury. Mm. Do you have to be more aware of that when they're younger because they are more susceptible to those injuries when they're younger? Because if they were runners, they'd be more mature in their lower mm. bodies because that's the area where they are maturing more faster. Mature. I think it's just different injury types. Mm. Uh, I think yeah, people can agree or disagree. I, I don't think children should be necessarily always training or competing with pain so uh, i don't mm. think that's a good thing in, in general um, it might be different types of pain like if you're a rugby player maybe collision pain is something you have to deal with mm. but you, you know it's probably something that's not you know going to cause mm. problems down the line but uh, when, it, when it comes to these growth related injuries um you know it's, it's probably easier to modify early on rather than letting it develop and then you have a problem that lasts for longer because mm. yeah there are there are some good st- studies out of Denmark that show that uh, kids who have knee pain uh, at a younger age also struggle with it later on so wow. so it you can have those long lasting impacts and also some you know stress fractures that are considered high risk that you know you, you want to take it seriously and maybe maybe you don't have to take time off but it's, it's I, I would say it's probably nice to see a health professional um, at some mm. point uh, so yeah. the, the word is if you've got a young athlete with any kind of injury caution mm. is key don't, don't push them through it yeah I mean mm. to me uh, that's that's where it's difficult to me as a non, not a non-medical pr- practitioner mm. I, I wouldn't be giving any health advice but it's mm. you know it's yeah, I I think pain is is usually a warning sign, and you know mm. that's something you should take seriously and at least monitor and mm. maybe have it checked out. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the most so so coming back to the injuries, you you did your PhD of on yeah. injuries in youth footballers and how maturation affects it. What were the mm. high level findings there? If you just sum it up. Yeah, so so I mean we see that injury types depend on age. So typically. Uh, injuries to the to the skeleton and growth related injuries they they peak around uh, th- under 13 under 14 and then they get less and less common where muscle injuries uh, follow the other opposite patterns so they get more and more common um, so and that, that kind of um, it, it aligns well with the, the theoretical background and some studies looking at maturity and in injuries where you see that it's it's the different injury types that change so an immature athlete will get different injuries from a mature athlete. And uh, it comes back to the, the vulnerability of these growth plates probably where uh, different structures uh, are the, the weak link. Let's say if you have a chain, muscle, mm. tendon, bone, uh, and you pull in that, like which part is going to break first? And in an immature athlete, it's probably the, the bone attachment or the growth plate, whereas in a in a mature athlete, it might be the muscle or the tendon. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And then, it, and then you talked to when you Ross, you were going to touch a bit on the nutrition side. I mean, yeah. Yeah. in terms of modifiable yeah. factors that can change this, I'd imagine nutrition would be quite an important one in a young athlete. Yeah, I think like most people say, okay, this is a non-modifiable risk factor because it's mainly genetic, but. And then that's why it's interesting, like here in South Africa, it might be a modifiable risk factor because mm. parts mm. of what determines your maturity is that you have adequate and healthy nutrition and, yeah. and not everyone has that. Whereas in you know Norway or where I was doing my PhD in Qatar, that, that wasn't necessarily 
an issue at all. Everyone had enough food. Mm. So so your environment does play a role. And, and there have been studies looking at that in South Africa, not in sports, but where you see that there are differences between ethnicities, which I would assume and the authors assumed were because of their socioeconomic status, which mm. again relates to mm. nutrition, uh, potentially. But here and, it'll and, be and pathology. massively so, confounded so, in this yeah, country. Illnesses that's, that's one of our, nutrition. That's what makes South Africa quite interesting to study. Mm. Mm. Um, I've, I've seen, I don't know whether you have, and maybe I'm mis, misremembering it, but there's data that skeletal health, and this might be a distinct thing from maturation, mm. is affected even by the mother's nutrition while in the womb. That there's, a, there's Lisa Micklesfield, there's a researcher <laughs> here. I'm pretty sure I have this right. And she was doing a thing called the, the Bone Health Study and started off as a birth to 20. They tracked these kids from birth up to 20 years old. It's probably now a birth to 40 study. Hmm. It's one of these massive longitudinal mm-hmm. data sets. And I very distinctly remember her saying that there, were, there was evidence that malnutrition in the mother during those nine months was a major predictor of the skeletal health at the age of five or six. Sure. So it seems to me like it would make a difference in in extreme circumstances, and that's why I th- thought it interesting. How close do you think we are to a place where? And you've talked a little bit about mm. the fact that you can't do in, invasive studies on like radiation on kids and that sort of thing. Mm. When you know, we've talked a bit about the, the fact that Ross is working with Ilana Mayer and working with this group of athletes, young athletes mm. who are potentially going to be future champions here in South Africa. Is there a way that we can say, right, there is, here's a 14-year-old and we are going to do these studies and we're going to choose that one over that one because of this factor? I mean, mm. how how close are we to getting to that point? And, and is that the sort of holy grail of youth development? I, again, it comes back to, okay, we have to put this in context. Biological maturity is one yeah. small part of this. So. Uh, whether it's the holy grail, I don't. I don't know. Like to me and my <laughs> my world right now, which are all around research on this topic, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the holy grail. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think we have to be uh, be honest and say that uh, there's there's a lot of other things that yeah. play a bigger you role. You can't just do a yeah. muscle biopsy and say right that person's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, but, but 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 we can. So so I think my angle on this is. There is there are ways to get an indication of where you are in your in your maturity process, and. If you have those uh, available, then then why would you not try to, to use it? Now, you have to trust it and you have to be aware of the limitations with those mm. methods. Uh, it's an estimate, it's not perfect, but I think it is one important piece to add in. And yeah, like I said, you, you can now do it with, uh, with ultrasound, but it is expensive as well. Like, mm. You aren't gonna get a uh, and uh, yeah, like uh, uh, any club, gonna they aren't just gonna pay no. for that because it's it's too expensive and it's probably other things. Yeah, they probably should not yeah, invest in other things like, <laughs> like equipment or yeah, uh, or yeah. coaches. Yeah. So, so comment on that. But before I make that comment, mm. let me ask it this way: If you gave some really good coaches fifty athletes to look mm, at. Yeah, How yeah. accurately are coaches able mm. to gauge biological maturation without needing some mm. sophisticated test? Or is it actually sometimes quite difficult to see? Um as it, so there was one study done in Germany on that and they uh, they found that like sports scientists and, and coaches they 
on average they're they're quite good at guessing skeletal age but but you would expect that because on average it, you know it makes sense but the the variations on an individual level was, mm. was a bit poor and they they tend to underestimate um the the very early maturing and overestimate the late maturing so everyone's kind of a bit more grouped in the middle yeah. so I, I think you can you can get a good idea just looking at someone uh, if they're early or late uh, yeah yeah and performances right two yeah. two 14 year olds and an 800 157 207 mm. okay there's a chance the 150 there's a good chance the 157 is an early earlier mature but by itself that's not enough right because mm. maybe that person's been training for four years so it's a training age effect, not a biological age effect. Yeah. So, so you've got to take into account, and plus there's just inherent differences that may never be ironed out. So you can never proceed mm. on the assumption that he'll catch up. Might might never be able to because he's just a different human. The reason I ask is because, yeah. you know, I represented, <laughs> as we said, to our coaches. And co- the coaches say, we kind of already know who's the early mature. Mm. So we might not need the tool. Mm. And I'm saying, well, then let the tool confirm what you thought. Mm. And if it doesn't confirm what you thought, maybe that's the one you really need to pay attention to. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. But, no, but I, I, I get that, yeah. But I can see that there's an ethical argument or dilemma that you might create if you overvalue the tool, right? Yeah, I think that's the same with any test, I guess, you use to mm. make big decisions. So you've got to be pretty certain that it's important and that it's accurate before you make a, a big mm. decision, like selecting someone and bringing them in. Like in this case, uh, to a high school program, yeah, it's a mm. bursary program, right? So it's, it's, it has big implications and you've got to be pretty sure that your your test is, yeah. is good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I suppose that my specific, mm. my, and this is me now talking from the EnduraCAD side is, specific concern would be that if you use the tool and you don't respect its limitations and understand the context in which that result exists it might prejudicially exclude someone mm. whose life might have been changed as a mm. consequence of not having the tool you know, so then it becomes actually not so good a force for harm actually yeah uh, but then the same is true in the other direction right what if we didn't pick someone who we would have based on the tool then we needed it so yeah no, it's I, a tool. I think that's, that's where, all it is right that's where it's been right it's yeah. a, a, yeah, especially power speed-based sports have mm. preferred early maturing athletes right. and like if uh, there's been studies in in football from from the Spire Academy in Manchester United where you see at under 10 under 9 level there's no difference between the percentage of early and late matures but then when you get to under 18 like, yeah it's, 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 I think it's up to 80% are early maturing so, so yeah. that, that's cool so can, can I just st- st- pause on that at 10 the, the, and in this instance, maturing is is measured by the x-ray. That was skeletal age, yeah. Skeletal age. So by the time they get to like the end of their sort of mm. adolescent phase, the early matures are massively overrepresented. So just, just mm. for the sake of completeness, explain what's happened in those intervening age years. Oh, yeah. Potentially, most likely, uh, the ones who have uh, matured earlier, they, they look better, they perform better. Mm. So they're selected and, and others are either kicked out or not reselected so uh, then you end up with this huge maturity bias and mm. and also they've been like, developed those early matures have now been developed yeah on top and of it's, the it's a cumulative effect as well it's mm. the same you can say with a relative age effect as well but yeah. that's from early childhood on where if you always get the attention and the focus then you, yeah maybe you might end up being a bit better even if you're deselected or selected at a later stage you yeah. might have those uh, benefits with you um yeah, so, so I think, I guess coming back to the point, like the, the problem is that there is 
in most places a maturity bias. So people do tend to hmm. uh, not favor the late maturing athlete. So yeah. it's kind of rooting for the the one who's not left out and, which, and giving him a, or her a chance. It's, it's, me, it's me and you, Eric. Yeah. Which fundamentally, <laughs> the reason for which fundamentally boils down to the incentive mm. of the person making that selection mm. is too immediate. That that coach at Manchester United has to pick for now, not for five years down the line. Well, we talked about because the he's fact going to be he's going to be evaluated on the basis of the performances yeah. in the next year, not not the ones five years later. But we know at, at, mm. at, at Premier League level in the UK now they're picking kids that are six years old for their youth development programs. Mm. As you said, the chances of them making the senior team oh. 12, 13, 14 <laughs> years later is minuscule. So that's a really yeah, interesting economic. Reasons, yeah. That's yeah. a really interesting economic model because picking them that young is cheap mm. and so they're willing to say yeah. I'll pick 100 and well, I don't mind if 99 blow out because the one that well, doesn't 99 will blow out well yeah I don't, and I don't care because the one that doesn't and if I didn't pick 100 and the one is in the 100 I didn't pick and Arsenal picks him then I mm. lose out mm. <laughs> so there's opportunity cost and economic um, it's, it's the same as buying a company like shares early when they list as opposed to buying the shares of an Apple you know <laughs> You want to try and buy it early because you can afford mm. to lose out. Mm. Anyway, it's it's scary. I mean, the scary thing from a parent's perspective is that you look at young, talented athletes, you know, you've got an eight, nine, ten-year-old son or daughter that's beating their peers in races. Mm. And then you think, okay, well, what, what's the process that I must go through now for them to, first of all, enjoy what they do, second of all, to make sure they don't get injured or mm. any sort of physical harm. And I've seen so many in, in my two sons growing up They've had friends that have been way ahead of them on uh, on certain sports. My son is a very good cyclist, but he had people of 14, 15 years of age who were being coached professionally. By 19, they're gone. They're mm. not even in the system anymore. And yet my son has mm. continued. He was a late developer. So it's an interesting one because as parents, when you see our kids develop and they look like they've got talent at 10 years old, you want them to continue that talent path. Yeah. But what you're saying is fine continue it but mm. remember that it only matters when you're 15 16 mm. and yeah, therefore and keep the options open and the things are not necessarily yeah. Mm. yeah exactly and it's also like you might need different challenges so, so we i mean we tend to think about the, the poor late maturing athlete but you know the early mm. maturing athlete also faces a lot of challenges like yeah if you've always been winning and then suddenly everyone starts catching up with you that's that's a really big challenge it might yeah your motivation might take a hit. The worst yeah. thing is when you're a 14 year old boy and you go to cross country and it's girls and boys in the same race and you get beaten by all the girls yeah. <laughs> because the girls are literally stronger than the same age boys. I was like cross country yeah, skiing, I was beaten by everyone, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but this this early developer thing, because we have we've we've focused a lot so far in this conversation on the late developer and how we can keep him or her. Uh, viable in the system the early developer is the 76 percent of those rugby players or the 90 percent of those high jumpers who become what i called earlier the ghosts so one of the other dilemmas for for for, for people now is what do you, can can you do anything with that person do you think mm. that respects the fact that they're early developers and then helps keep them in the system for longer yeah, and, and I, th I think this comes back to the, like, as a basic training principle of individualization. Yeah. Like, everyone needs, as far as possible, to be challenged based on where they are in their background. So, it, it's really kind of that simple, but one way you can do that is to, you can, you can adjust your training plans according mm. to maturity, because some 
uh, training uh, might be more or less um, you might place more or less emphasis on it depending on how far you're along in your your maturity mm. or maturation you are but you can also group athletes based on on maturity and and timing of the growth spurt mm. so you, you might there there's there's been some good research on that in, in football in england for Cummings, example eh? yeah, yeah. Um, it's called biobending yeah exactly. so you bend them by their biological age as far as you can yeah and then that's where you so instead of playing under 14 under 16 under 18 you might have a group that's uh depending on your uh, yeah um if you use uh the the percentage of adult height which is quite uh, quite often used you, you might group them from yeah say 85 mm. to 90 or 95 to mm. and up together so mm. that you play with those who are biologically matched mm. and and then they, yeah then you i, th- I think that uh, it was a uh, they did a study where they looked at how they perceived that and it seemed like it was well received among both the early and the late um, because they were challenged in different areas. So the the early maturing athlete will now not be able to rely on his or her uh, strength and power. You can't just run over your opponents. You have to mm. be more technical, tactical. Mm. And and the the later maturing athletes, they they they, they now suddenly they have freedom to to display their other abilities, technical abilities. So mm. um, I, I think. I think that can be again. It's it's really challenging because you need a sufficient number of athletes within those different groups. So maybe mm. that's where you you might go multiple clubs together or teams together and mm. and and organize a tournament like that. It's um, interesting to think though that being the early maturist creates disadvantages for you because you never need to learn a set of skills that the other folk have to. So mm, your skill and your tactical yeah. awareness and your decision making may never be refined. And then mm. when you lose this physical advantage. All the kids who've come up behind you have got skills you'll never have developed. So. Which is a very much a big problem in the South African rugby system in many oh, yeah. ways. Yeah. And New Zealand. Like, so in New Zealand, yeah. for instance, they do weight banding in some regions mm-hmm. and in some competitions. And World Rugby gets asked often why we don't recommend weight banding in all countries around the world. And it's because we don't run community rugby in all countries around the world. But there are also other considerations. Because imagine, again, you have a three-year split. You're going to have... Well, six years actually, but let's say three, you'll have a 12, 13 year old playing in 16, 17 year olds. And now they're emotionally different humans, mm. even if they might be physically quite similar. Mm. So then you, and you remove people from their peers and that's the counter arguments mm. to this. So it gets yeah. much more complex than you think. But I, I, I would think it's definitely worth exploring because you have to, have, the challenge has to be there mm. at the level of the person's development. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I, th- I think in either case you have to explain this quite well because mm. you're, you're probably going to get parents who come to you mm. like why is my mm. kid playing with a 10 year old when he's 14 yeah. La- last one on the early developers like everyone well not everyone but most people will be familiar with the idea of like the suddenly clumsy mm. awkward looking yeah. goofy looking teenager because that's and that's driven by growth yeah yeah yeah, so there is this concept. Uh, it's been called like adolescent awkwardness. Yeah. So it's uh, it doesn't happen. That's not social. Yeah. That's not social awkwardness. I remember yeah. it well. No, you're yeah. talking about the social awkwardness you felt. Both. You felt when you were standing on the pool deck with all those hairy fourteen-year-olds. <laughs> uh, emotional awkwardness. Yeah. No, it's it's more. I guess more the physical side where. You know, you, you change your body dimensions and your body composition changes so much over a short period of time that you, you struggle doing what you used to be able to do very easily. Mm. Uh, and again, that typically you can see that around the the, the peak height velocity or, or yeah mm. rate of highest growth, where performance might then be affected by by the fact that you're adjusting to a new body. So again, that's 
that's something that could, that could play a role in injury risk, but it's also something that could play a role when you you determine or look at performance and, and want to select. So if you select and, and a guy's going through his, uh, or a girl goes through the growth spurt, like they might be at a disadvantage just because they're in that little phase. And it's, it's also really challenging if you have um, adolescents who, who perform well and you know they progress and progress and progress and suddenly they don't progress anymore. They might even get worse. Mm then you try to overcompensate by okay well i gotta do more and then you know you increase your tra training load intensity you end up getting injured or burnt out so again i think it's about patience but, but it's also maybe it's a good time to to focus on on some alternative training a bit mm. more say fundamental movement skills some some balance maybe some flexibility and yeah may, maybe uh, be a bit careful with your uh, like super high intensity mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. yeah. Last one from me, like you're obviously doing this research and, and that's how we have our sort of conversations and how this came about. For what are the two or three main research questions that you feel need to be answered in the next couple of years to advance our understanding of this subject? I think there's a huge gap in understanding girl sport or female sport. Um, there's very little done in, in, in terms of both performance and injury risk. Um, one, one challenge with that might be the fact that they mature earlier, which means you have to kind of mm. catch them earlier in your research project, which is really challenging when you get to the younger ages. But I think that's a massive gap that we don't really know much about. Mm. Um, I think in general, maybe the getting a bit more rigor in the studies. Uh, I think now there are so many academies and clubs make taking measures over time that you might be able to get really good quality studies rather than using these estimation mm -hmm. equations that, that have been criticized so i think just getting more high quality studies over time you really need to just try to follow someone over time if you want mm -hmm. to really understand it it's it's okay to get a bit of an understanding just following a team for one season but what you really need is like long-term solid studies um mm -hmm. yeah um I don't know. To me, to me uh, personally, I think the, the the African context is is underexplored as well. Mm. Like it's people people say genetics may play a role, may not. Uh, the the you know the the all the methods used are based on reference samples, uh, mostly from Caucasian individuals, which means that anything you're estimating assumes that uh, your individual or athlete. Uh, can be considered similar to that and I, I don't think we really know if that if that's true so hmm. um i mean maybe me being in south africa obviously that's that's something i want to work on hmm. fascinating eric thanks very much for your time and i uh, look forward to seeing some more research come out and let us know what, what you discover when, when you how long are you here in south africa for yeah um, indefinitely or? yeah <laughs> I've, I've, got, I've got a contract until the end of 2025 so okay i guess that's uh that's okay. my plan so far and you might just stay mm. here and we'll go back you know. it's yeah, warmer here, isn't it? yeah it's, uh, the weather is a lot better here than norway so <laughs> all right thanks thanks very much thank for your time yeah, thanks so much thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports and on instagram at science of sport podcast
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 